it's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. From the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson. It's Thursday, November 3rd, 2022. From New York City, it's the Guy Benson Show. I'm Guy Benson. Thank you very much for listening. Every weekday, 3 to 6 Eastern, that's our time slot. We encourage you to listen live as we air. If you can't, there's a podcast for that. It's free. It's on demand when the show is over. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com, wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on social media, at Guy Benson Show. We have some bonus content there. For example, one of my answers earlier today while co-hosting Outnumbered on the couch, hashtag one lucky guy. We posted that on our Twitter feed, so it's at Guy Benson Show. I'm the political editor at townhall.com, a Fox News contributor, very busy on the TV side up here all the way through the election, including tonight I'll be on with Jesse Waters. Approaching the 8 p.m. hour, so toward the end of the 7 o'clock hour Eastern time, that's on Fox News Channel. We on set with Jesse here in New York. Looking forward to that. Listen to our rundown here today. Guest list. U.S. Senator Marco Rubio, Florida, half an hour away this hour. Josh Holmes, longtime Mitch McConnell aide, co-host of Ruthless. He's got his irons in a lot of fires, his ear to the ground. He talks to a lot of these candidates. We will get his predictions, especially in the Senate races. That's coming up in the next hour. Also in the next hour, our middle hour, the governor of New Hampshire, Chris Sununu, a Republican, who seems to be coasting to re-election, but there's another big race, actually a couple in that state, some House races, one of which at least looks very close, and a Senate race that is tied? Is that real? Can Senator Hassan actually lose that race? We'll ask him. And in our final hour, just past 5 p.m. Eastern time, we will welcome back to the studio Bill Hemmer, our colleague here at Fox News co-host of America's Newsroom, of course. And next Tuesday on election night, he will be there with Bill's big board, right, the interactive map, the touchscreen. We'll talk all about that and maybe talk through some of the early bellwethers as well with Bill. That should be a good conversation as well. I'd like to begin by noting something that happened last night in New Hampshire, since we were just talking about Governor Sununu. That Senate race is extremely tight now. Let's just take a step back. In the state of New Hampshire, Maggie Hassan is the incumbent Republican. Check that. The incumbent Democratic senator being challenged by the Republican, Don Bulldog. Bulldog is the hand-selected opponent by the Democrats for Maggie Hassan. They spent millions getting him across the finish line in a Republican primary, which is not to say that Republican voters didn't want it or didn't have any agency. I would have gone a different direction. I know Governor Sununu wanted voters to go a different direction with his endorsement, but the voters picked Don Bulldog. With almost all of his television messaging 
effectively being funded by the Democrats because they felt he's this sort of nutty guy who said some crazy things in the past and they'll be able to beat him in the general election. So even though he's an election denier, quote unquote, even though he's a threat to democracy using their parlance, they wanted him on the ballot anyway because he'd be easier to beat than a more, let's say, mainstream traditional Republican. That's a choice that they made. Right. Republican voters made their choice. Democrats nationally made their decision to help fund his campaign and to boost him with a lot of money. So now they've got him. They've got the matchup that they wanted. With Maggie Hassan, the incumbent Democrat, they had a debate last night, which I'll talk about here in just a second. On the same night that President Biden was giving yet another democracy speech this time at Union Station in D.C., which is what we opened with yesterday. And Biden did his normal song and dance, right? The violence, it's scary, election denial, it's all a threat. Some of the points I don't disagree with, except he has no credibility on these points, given the fact that he has endorsed election deniers, so long as they're Democrats. His own press secretary is an election denier. She spread conspiracy theories about Donald Trump's election, about Brian Kemp's election in Georgia. So, like, I'm not really interested in lectures from these people. But last night you had the debate in New Hampshire, Hassan versus Bulldog, and he's a first-time candidate. The reviews are actually pretty good for him. You look at the trend lines in that race, and it is now too close to call. It's a toss-up, at least as far as the polling is concerned. And there are two polls out in the last 48 hours that actually have him— the Republican challenger, edging out to a tiny lead of a point. The other thing about New Hampshire is they don't really do the early voting thing, so late momentum matters a lot. Right, John Fetterman in Pennsylvania, who still might lose, a couple new polls out today with Dr. Oz ahead. And I talked to a source of mine on the ground in Pennsylvania who's very plugged in, Knows a lot about PA politics, let's put it that way. He thinks Oz is going to win. And some of the polls are showing that. But Fetterman, at least, who has a chance to win, the Democrat in that that race, before he had his disastrous debate last week, he had already banked probably hundreds of thousands of votes from early votes, mail-in votes. In fact, there was a, a spike in Google searches the night of the debate. Can I undo my vote? People who had already voted in Pennsylvania for Fetterman and they saw him, they're like, oh, wait, never mind. Can I have a redo? They can't. But Fetterman banked an awful lot of votes before that debate happened, which is one of the things that might help him be close or even potentially win if Oz can't pull it off. Whereas in New Hampshire, it's all about late momentum and all of the late momentum is on the side of the Republicans in New Hampshire and Don Bulldog, who very well might become a United States senator. And if he does, we'll hear a lot of carping and whining and hand-wringing concern. Oh, this this denier of democracy, this denier of elections, this threat. He's now a senator. This is democracy is more in peril than we ever realized. Well, they boosted him on the other side. And for that reason, I hope they get what they asked for nice and hard. They made a choice. They made a decision. Now, on his way into the debate with Maggie Hassan last night, guess what happened? Don Bulldog, the Republican, the challenger, 
got assaulted. A guy who I apparently reportedly is an anti-police activist sort of lunged at the guy and threw a punch, took a swipe at the Republican. That sounds to me like political violence. Now, I think we should wait and get all the information and cross our T's and dot our I's, but if we were just doing our version of the mainstream media, there would be no room for that. Facts wouldn't really matter very much. This is a vicious attack on democracy, political violence, fueled directly by the dangerous, violent-inducing rhetoric of the Democratic Party. And if they don't stop campaigning, if they don't stop attacking Republicans, if they don't cool it with their rhetoric and really basically stop talking completely, they are complicit in the violence and they have blood on their hands. Do I believe any of that? No. Is that how they argue constantly? Yes. I saw one of the leading lights on The View compared Republican women today to cockroaches. Very dehumanizing. Is that the type of rhetoric that we can afford to have when Republican candidates are getting punched and attacked on the campaign trail? When Republican canvassers are getting put in the hospital, shot, attacked, and beaten? Right? These are their standards. This is how they argue. And yet, have you heard about this attempted attack in New Hampshire on Don Bulldog? Is, is that not playing on repeat everywhere? No, well, that's weird. What about this one? The long shot Republican gubernatorial candidate in Illinois who's going to lose. A man has been charged with making death threats against the Republican Illinois gubernatorial nominee. Threatening to skin him alive. and Making references to Republican racism and abortion. So this is a radical lunatic leftist now charged with death threats. Very disturbing ones. Is this the fault of the Democrats and their words and the way that they demonize Republicans round the clock 365? I don't believe so. I think that's rough and tumble politics. But the double standard of the media is on full display once again. Now, obviously, we talked about all of this fairly recently in reference to the attack against Paul Pelosi in the Pelosi's home in San Francisco. And I have said my piece on that. I will add just a few more details, courtesy of Jim Garrity at National Review, because this all plays into this theme. Garrity, confirming what we told you yesterday, the man who attacked Mr. Pelosi had overstayed his visa and had resided illegally in the United States for many years, likely since 2008. He's been here for a decade and a half illegally, this guy. He's a Canadian. The FBI searched where he'd been living, found evidence that he had lived in the garage of this location. I'm not sure if this was the hippie commune with all the left-wing slogans or a different garage. But in that residence, if you want to call it, they found DMV paperwork and IRS letters and PayPal credit card. So this guy was not off the grid. He was on the grid. Government documents. Living up there in Northern California illegally for years. And as Garrity points out, Pelosi's attacker was on the radar of the IRS, but not on the radar 
of ICE, the people who are in charge of deporting people who aren't allowed to be here. Why is that? Because in the Bay Area, various cities, including Richmond, California, where this property was, it's not just a sanctuary city that bars local police from reporting the immigration status of individuals and ignores requests by ICE to detain undocumented, uh, undocumented immigrants. But back in 2018, the city council there went further, expanding sanctuary protections, if you want to call them that, by blocking contacts with companies that provide data or vetting services to federal immigration authorities. That move from the city council came despite objections from the city's mayor and the police at the time. Making it easier for dangerous people who are not here legally to stay. Now, do I blame the Democrats for what happened to Paul Pelosi? No, just like I don't blame the Republicans. Just like I don't blame the Democrats writ large for acts and spasms of violence against conservatives, which happen far too frequently and get largely ignored. But if we want to look at actual policies, some actual evidence about a contributing factor to Paul Pelosi's attack, the sanctuary policies the, like on steroids in Northern California absolutely played a role in how this guy was allowed to be there at all in the jurisdiction to do what he did. So there's a lot more evidence of that than, for example, this guy was watching Jesse Waters which is what Gavin Newsom, the governor of California, suggested this week. Blaming Jesse, blaming Fox News. Or that he saw some very run-of-the-mill Republican fire Pelosi advertisements in the campaign season. I saw one of the stories written in the mainstream press open with an example of an anti-Pelosi ad from 2006. I believe this guy was still in Canada at the time. The double standards obviously drive me crazy, which is why I devote as much time to them, probably more than I should. But the reason that I open the show with it today, in addition to just making you aware of a few things that happened to Republicans that a lot of other folks in the media just won't talk about at all because it doesn't fit the capital N narrative. If Maggie Hassan had gotten like manhandled by some right-wing protester outside the debate last night? You think that might be getting a little bit more attention? But the roles are reversed, and so it's just like, shh. Let's not really talk about that. It's just so obvious. It's so transparent. A word, a touchstone that I keep coming back to over and over again ahead of this election next Tuesday is accountability. Accountability for the president, for his party, on a whole host of issues, but also, yes, for the media. They pick a side. They lie about it. They're not subtle. They want the Democrats to win. They need to be held accountable too. And there's a way to help that happen by giving them a big sad next Tuesday. I don't know who'll be sadder, the Democrats themselves or the journalists. That could be too close to call on the big board, actually. But it won't happen automatically. We can't just manifest it. It takes actual voting. Make a plan and go vote. It's only every other year. It's not hard. It matters a lot. We are just getting started. It is Thursday on The Guy Benson Show from New York City. Stay tuned. The Guy Benson Show. More next. 
Hi, everybody. It's Brian Kilmeade. I want you to join me weekdays at 9 a.m. East as we break down the biggest stories of the day with some of the biggest newsmakers and, of course, what you think. Listen live or get the podcast now at briankilmeadeshow.com. I'm Guy Benson. We're back. We mentioned this in passing yesterday, but carjackings have become a huge problem in D.C. Some of them have gotten very ugly and turned deadly. Some horrible examples of carjackings that turn into felony murder. Philly, it's a huge problem there as well. But in D.C., it has been a scourge. It's blowing past records. And with that happening right now, the Washington, D.C. City Council just voted this week unanimously to advance a bill on criminal justice that would, quote, eliminate most mandatory minimum sentences and reduce the maximum penalties for offenses such as burglaries, carjackings, and robberies. They're picking this moment, the D.C. City Council, to reduce the penalties criminally for crimes that are exploding, dangerous, violent crimes that too often escalate into death, murder. It is literally insane. And there was not a single person on the city council in Washington, D.C., who said, you know what? No, not not now. Let's uh, put this on ice at least for a while. They all did it. Unanimous. Now, it's not law yet. There's still multiple steps, but this was the first big vote on advancing it, and they did it unanimously. These people want to become a state, by the way. Democrats want to make D.C. a state, only to add two senators. I mean, that's the whole game. What a joke. It's dangerous enough in D.C. They want to tell the criminals, hey, we're going to go even easier on you. That's the message the government is sending right now. And by the way, it's bleeding into other places. Apple Store, Bethesda, Maryland, in Bethesda, it's a very sort of upscale area. The Apple Store was just robbed a week ago. And then in Northern Virginia, a nice neighborhood called Clarendon in Arlington, there was an armed robbery yesterday at the Apple Store. Guy with a gun came in, brandishing the gun, scooped up some laptops, and had a getaway car. Wonder where they jetted off to. So it's not just D.C. and that area that's affected by this. It starts to bleed elsewhere. But don't worry. They tell us crime. It's all in our imagination. It's a conspiracy, says Kathy Hochul. And good luck with that. Marco Rubio up next. Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton with Row. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my <laughs> name is Chad. His name is Jonathan. But you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. Welcome back to the Guy Benson Show. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. Our next guest is running for Senate in Florida. He's running for re-election, and he has put out his final closing ad of the campaign. We played a little bit of Governor DeSantis's closing ad on the show this week, which had very little speaking at all. 
It was just an instrumental version of America the Beautiful. And it was an inspiring, positive ad a minute long. Well, Senator Rubio now has his closing argument to the people of Florida in a brand new ad airing exclusively on Fox through Election Day. Let's listen together to Cut 19. America, it saved my family from hopelessness and gave me the opportunity to do all the things they never could. America's the greatest country in the history of the world. It saved humanity from tyrants and inspired the world. America, blessed with the energy to power us and farms that feed us. We aren't defined by the color of our skin. We're defined by rights that come from God. In America, our history isn't perfect, but we never stop striving to be better. Here, each generation leaves the next one better off. This is our country, and if you don't love it, you're free to leave it. But we will never allow anyone to destroy it. I'm Marco Rubio. I approve this message. And with us now is Senator Marco Rubio. Senator, great to have you back here. Thanks for having me back. I appreciate it. So, look, you have been relentlessly attacked. They spent a lot of money against you, a very negative campaign as they try to beat you. It looks like they're going to have real trouble doing that based on the polling. Your final message to Floridians is what we just heard, very positive pro-American message, a lot of themes familiar from you. Give us your thought process in that final ad, what went into it, and did you have to resist a temptation to closing out the campaign with some negative stuff about your opponent, given the type of race that she's run? Well, look, I think at the end, you have to always explain to people why it matters, because voting and having elections and even politics in general is not just about, you know, sending, you know, this is not some talent show or whatever. I mean, what, there are consequences to this. And to me, at stake here is we are on a direction right now that isn't just wrong for the short term. It'll end up robbing us of many of the things that make the country special. I believe it'll end up destroying America, at least its status as a great country. And and, and that's what's at stake here. We have to remember we are the inheritors of this extraordinary miracle that's perpetually improved, and each generation has improved upon it and left it better for the next. And now we have to make that choice uh, ourselves. Are we willing to do what it takes? And, and the Democratic Party, which is in control of the House, the Senate, the White House, uh, what controls them are a bunch of radical laptop liberals and Marxist misfits who have ideas that are either based on a hatred of America or a disgust for America or, frankly, are just uh, – lunacy. I mean, they're just not tied to anything that makes any sense uh, in terms of what we know works. I want to ask you about the president's trip down to your neck of the woods this week. Were you surprised to see the Democrats bringing him in? I felt like you and the whole Republican ticket, like, okay, here's some bouquets, you know, welcome to Florida, Mr. President. It's quite a contrast. And then one of those rallies, at least I saw some of it, one of the surrogates for your opponent, some actress was saying some really crazy stuff out there about race it just struck me very it struck me as very weird very odd the whole thing it was odd i mean i don't know who she is and i don't know the whole totality of what she said but the part i did hear yeah i mean it sounded like someone was on you know quaaludes or whatever and, and it's just going nuts i mean it's just saying ridiculous things that i didn't think made any sense to begin with but i think it's revealing because there are a lot of people like that i mean we look at it we might chuckle whatever make fun of make light of it 
there are a lot of activists, the people that knock on doors and, and in many cases raise money for and sort of show up and even staff these campaigns and congressional offices come from that view. It's like they've turned the, their entire party into a college campus, isolated from the outside world and reality, and, um, and, and, and buy into these ridiculous theories that, that have never you know, been true, not to mention work. On the, on the issue of uh, Biden coming, look, I feel like you've got a president got to go somewhere because it's embarrassing to say the president's so unpopular he can't campaign. And so they're thinking, well, we're here. We, we can't send him to a state where the election's down to half a point or where we're you know, barely holding on or, or we're losing. Let's just send him somewhere where, where we think we're not going to win anyway and and, um, and, and at least what didn't do any harm. And, um, and I wish he had stayed the whole week, but, um, but at least we got him for those few hours. <laughs> and who knows who would have spoken if they had more rallies. <laughs> it's like you could start sponsoring the rallies for him. Like, I'm Marco yeah. Rubio. I approve this rally. <laughs> exactly. That's exactly right. Now, speaking of rallies, you're going to have one this coming Sunday, I believe, with President Trump. That's going to be interesting. I, that's down in South Florida, if I recall correctly. Tell us about how that came to be. And I know there's been some press reports about the governor not coming or not being invited. What's going on? Well, and I don't know who's been invited or who hasn't, frankly, because it's not our event to put on him in the Trump organization. Folks do all that. But look, he lives in Florida. He lives in Mar-a-Lago. He votes here. And uh, so we had a conversation. I kind of called joking around just to make sure he had voted and make sure he was voting for me and <laughs> make sure I get all the votes there, you know. And um, and then um, and then the topic turned to the race. And, you know, look, I'm not going to misrepresent this as the closest race in the country, but it's Florida. I mean, we, we've you know, we were, were four years removed from a Senate race decided by less than a tenth of a, by less than a tenth of a point. And so when you have the most popular most uh, Republican and best known Republican in the country who lives in your state and is ready to come out and, and do something that helps. And it really, I think, motivates our base of voters to come out more than anybody else. It's a no brainer. You know? So I'm looking forward to it. And it'll also be helpful to a bunch of our other candidates that are running uh, for Congress and local office and uh, state school boards and state legislature where we have a chance to pick up some super majorities. So um, I think it's uh, it's going to be a good night and a good event, and I think it's going to help continue this momentum that we're seeing in the in the early voting period. Senator Rubio, I have been trying to convey here on my show, on my Twitter feed, just how astounding the early voting patterns are looking in your state. You are a student of Florida politics. You've been involved from the state level all the way up to the federal level for a very long time, years now. Please put into context in your own words what we're seeing in the early vote, and what on earth is happening in Miami-Dade County. Why is that so significant? Well, I think there are two things that are happening at once. Uh, the first is, is, well, three things. The first is there's an extraordinary amount of excitement and interest in this election among Republican and Republican-leaning voters. And so they're coming out to vote, and they're coming out to vote in good numbers. And there's just more Republicans because the state has changed demographically. There are half a million more Republicans as a raw number today in Florida than there were in 2018. I think there's 20 or 30,000 more Democrats, even though the state has added 1.6 million voters in four years. There's half a million more Republicans, only you know like 30 or 40,000 more Democrats. So the numbers are on your side and there's more excitement. The second is that there's no motivation on the Democratic side. I mean, the, the, the ticket hasn't excited them. Biden hasn't excited them. The issues they have focused on hasn't moved them. Uh, they, they may not vote for Republican, but they don't seem to be very interested in voting in the election. And so you're seeing that dynamic play out. And then the third is just the, the direction of the country. It is hard for your party to control the White House, the House and the Senate. And everything's gotten worse over the last 22 months. Inflation, the border, 
uh, crime, and people reward you by allowing you to remain in power. And and then the you know and they have a lot to blame, not just for causing all this, but for what they have focused on. It, it, what people are worried about every day, people on a fixed income and working families, is everything costs more, and I'm not making. But their paycheck is not growing nearly as fast as what's what's going out. You know what they have to pay for food, for gas, et cetera. And you have a White House that not only not, does not talk about it, but when it talks about it, it's everyone else's fault. It's not theirs. It's Putin's fault. It's a global phenomenon. It's transitory, whatever you want to say. But they never want to accept responsibility because if they did, they'd have to do something about it, and they can't do anything about it. They, they can't produce more American oil because their fringe crazies in their party will go bonkers. And, and so they can't. They, they, they can't do that. So um, I think that's the dynamic you're seeing play out in Florida, and I hope it's playing out. In states, but look, that's only as good as it continues. People have to continue to come out and vote. I don't want people hearing this and thinking, "I'm hearing it's all a done deal down there." There's no point in me voting. I mean, that's not accurate. We got to continue to to, to keep uh, the pedal to the metal yeah, here. Build the wave. The Be the wave, right? It doesn't happen by accident. People have to actually do it. And just to quickly drill down on Miami Dade, because here's the thing: I've been following politics for a while. I remember not that long ago, Miami Dade was one of those blue wall counties in Florida for the Democrats. And they would run up big, big numbers in Miami-Dade. And the reporting is that they're worried they could lose it to the Republicans, to you guys, this year. What's what's happening there? What's the shift? Well, I mean, the shift, first of all, you're seeing it in the turnout. I think actually there's more Republicans have voted early than Democrats. And when I say early voting, understand, we by the end of tonight, maybe up to as much as 40 percent of what is going to vote in this election will have already have voted. So that's a pretty good indicator of where this is headed. But the second thing that's happened is really is among Hispanic Americans that, that live in South Florida. And it's not the Hispanic angle. That's certainly what they are. It's um, They happen to also be disproportionately working class people and small business owners. And they are voting like working class and small business owning voters. They, they just happen to be Hispanic. But their voting and their interests are not indistinguishable from that of most working class and Americans and small business owners. And that is, you know, they don't want schools indoctrinating their kids. They don't want criminals roaming the streets doing whatever they want. They are not in favor of chaotic, out of control, 5,000 people a day, mass migration at our border. They don't think that's good for the country. They don't want it. They're being hurt by inflation. And they look at a Democratic Party that's focused on all the wrong things. And in some cases, has adopted lunatic positions, you know, like, you know, what, what, why are we, prominent leaders in America that are openly advocating the use of medicines and surgeries to alter the gender of children as young as 10, 13, 14 years of age. I mean, it's just something that was unimaginable 10 years ago that any mainstream politician would be out there talking about these things. And this has now become almost a litmus test in the Democratic Party. That's just completely unrelatable to a working class, small business owner, Hispanic American. And on that priorities point, just in the last few days, what last night we had President Biden giving another speech on democracy and how it's all going to die, basically, if Republicans win these elections, if, if voters vote for Republicans, elections and democracy dies. It's sort of an interesting argument to make. He also went on this whole song and dance about windfall profits and the oil companies and raising taxes, which just seems so desperate and ridiculous. But I mean, this is like an incoherent, flailing closing argument from the Democrats, that that probably makes you feel good if this is what they've got. Yeah, and I don't even know that really is a closing argument, to be honest with you, because there's no, I mean, they can't be that incompetent and, and that guilty of political malpractice to think that that's going to change the direction this election's headed. I actually think what he is now beginning to set up, uh, knowing that they're going to suffer these losses, is 
this is what the narrative they want to create for his battles with a Republican majority in Congress. Uh, I think that that's what they're setting up is, yeah, they're blocking. I want to do this. I want to do that. But these MAGA Republicans, these anti-democratic people, uh, that they, they will not give me what I want. They won't give me what we're for. I think he's trying to – it's not going to work either because the things we want are widely supported by the American people. But, uh, but I think he's starting – they're trying to start laying out their their, uh, their narrative of who they're going to be fighting against here for the next two years. Um, I, I can't imagine that they think that that is actually going to uh, move the needle uh, because no one no one believes democracy threatened. And if it is, then it's by people like Hillary Clinton, who is still on the air talking to the state, having to answer for why she called Donald Trump an illegitimate president after 2016. And Stacey Abrams, who said she didn't really lose in 2018. And and plenty of plethora of other Democrats who claim voter suppression and, and that votes uh, aren't. In fact, that I didn't hear it, but I've been heard from multiple people. That crazy actress that spoke at that um, rally that Demings had with Biden said that we were me and DeSantis were actively out there intimidating voters from coming out to vote. Mm. I don't, all I know is I've spent more money than I wanted to uh, trying to let people know there's an election and encouraging them to come out and vote. Yeah, I mean, that's right. And you mentioned Hillary Clinton and Stacey Abrams. Someone who supported their conspiracy theories and election denialism is now the spokeswoman, the chief spokeswoman, uh, spokeswoman for the president of the United States. Karine Jean-Pierre is an election denier as well. And, you know, she gets hired by this White House to speak on behalf of the president. Uh, finally, Senator Rubio, I see that you're going to be on special report tonight on Fox News Channel with Brett Baer. They're promoting you on that show and also your old friend, Charlie Crist, who I guess is running for governor um, now is a Democrat. Is he still a Democrat? He seems to change yeah. around a lot. No, I think he's finally settled in there and um, <laughs> he'll have the he'll have the rare and distinct honor of having lost to uh, me in 2010 and then Rick Scott in 2014 and now Ron DeSantis in <laughs> 2022. So it's almost like a rite of passage. He's for making the rounds. Statewide. Yeah. And um, <laughs> look, I I, uh, I think it's, uh, you know, He's going to lose, and, and uh, it is what it is. But um, I don't I think Floridians want him as their next governor. But uh, being, uh, it'll, uh, it's been fascinating to watch. It certainly has been. Senator Marco Rubio wants to keep that job. He's on the ballot on Tuesday. Early voting underway, looking very good in Florida. But you got to keep, as he said, the pedal to the metal. Senator Rubio, looking forward to chatting again next time, probably after the election. We'll be watching on Tuesday. Yep, thank you for having me on. You bet. We'll see you on Special Report tonight also on Fox News Channel. We'll step aside, come right back. It's The Guy Benson Show. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. Back on The Guy Benson Show. Marco Rubio down, Josh Holmes, Governor Chris Sununu, and Bill Hemmer still to go. Here on today's Guy Benson Show. Did you see this little side story in Arizona? So there was a robbery, a break-in at Katie Hobbs' campaign at her headquarters or one of her offices. Katie Hobbs, the Democrat running for governor, who won't debate Kerry Lake and seems actually like an awful candidate. Anyway, the Hobbs campaign and Hobbs blamed Kerry Lake and the Republicans for the break-in. Baselessly, because this is what they do, right? This is what they do. Whether there's evidence or not, it's like they did it. This is a crime, political violence, what do they want to call it? And they all run with this. What we open the show with today. Well, now we're getting more information. The late campaign, of course, denied it, said, how dare you? We had nothing to do with this crime. What are you talking about? Well, now it turns out that the suspect in the burglary was an illegal immigrant wanted by ICE. 
for deportation. Had nothing to do with the Lake campaign. This was just uh, an, it seems, apolitical break-in by someone who happens to be an illegal immigrant. Little uh, tables turning action there. Now Katie Hobbs, you would think, will have to answer some questions about this. And the scurrilous accusations that she made, lazy, stupid, political. Now this is yet another opportunity to talk about the border crisis. And, of course, Arizona is heavily affected by that border crisis. I bet you Carrie Lake would love to ask Katie Hobbs face-to-face about it at a debate, but, of course, Hobbs won't show up. She's been ducking that like crazy. And I think for obvious reasons. I've stated before for various reasons I am not a Carrie Lake fan. I don't like the lying about the election that she has done. And I know some of you might say she's not lying. I Look, you know where I stand on this. But I will also confess, again, that one of my guilty pleasures this election cycle is watching Carrie Lake be very, very skillful with the media. She's good. Right? I'm, I'm not going to say I love her and some of the stuff that got her to this point. But now that she's the nominee, the way she comports herself with the press and turns things around on them and is prepared for things and is just very smooth. She's good. She was asked a really tough, fair question about a a negative ad being run against her involving January 6th and the mother of someone who died. And even though, like, on some of the substance, I don't agree with her, the way that she responded was like a master class. Democrats boosted her. Just like they boosted the guy in New New Hampshire. Be careful what you wish for, Democrats. You might have Governor Carrie Lake, who might be on to bigger things. I don't know. She's got some talent. Josh Holmes coming up next. Live from the most powerful city in the world, unconventional talk from a fresh, unconventional conservative, Guy Benson Show. Hey, look, it's our middle hour already here on The Guy Benson Show. Thanks for listening. GuyBensonShow.com. Podcast is free every day when the show is over. Catch me tonight, Jesse Waters' prime time in the 7 p.m. hour Eastern. That's on Fox News Channel. Fox News alert. The Dow closing down today, 146 points, ending up at 32,001 on the dot. With us now is Josh Holmes, founding partner of Cavalry LLC, co-host of the Ruthless Podcast. Josh, always good to have you here. Oh, man, it's so good to be here, guys. The bleary-eyed, road-weary portion of the program for those of us involved in midterm elections. Uh huh. Yes, from our program to yours, there's a lot going on. It's exhausting, but this is what we do. This is what we're passionate about. Let's talk about what you are seeing, what you're feeling, because, you know, you've got Cavalry LLC, you've got the pod that everyone's excited about, you know, Ruthless is a huge hit. You also have a very deep background in Republican Senate politics. And so I am most interested in your assessment of a bunch of these Senate races because you're plugged in like you're just not some guy pontificating. You know, a lot of these candidates, you know, people running these races, you know, some of the consultants and the pollsters. So just sort of giving you some some chops in, in your background for the audience to understand Maybe let's just walk through a couple of these. Let's start in what seems to be the clearest one of the, you know, the close races, which is Nevada. It looks like 
Adam Laxalt is in a very good position to win. I see John Ralston is sounding the alarm about the blue wall for Democrats not looking what it, like what it needs to be out there as it's been in previous cycles. Uh, you know, I'm always nervous about Nevada. I, I don't celebrate anything prematurely, but Laxalt, at least to my eyes, seems like he's in a decent position if Republican voters turn out. Yeah, look, our little firm gets involved in one or two of these every year, and, and we do so because we believe in the candidate, but we also think it makes a tangible difference, right? I mean, I think coming into this cycle, Nevada was probably the stretch goal for Republicans. I mean, it was a state that went blue, bluer, and bluest over uh, 16, 18, and 20 to the point where they have uh, Democrats of a total codlock on government in, in Nevada. But what's happened, obviously, is post-COVID, an incredible amount of economic problems that are caused by the policies that uh, were created by Joe Biden and, and uh, Governor of the state, Sisolak. And there's a, there's a real rejection of that. I mean, coupled with that is uh, what we've seen in South Texas and multi-generational Hispanic communities around this country, uh, a real sea change about uh, who the Hispanic community is supporting, what party they're supporting. Uh, to give you a, a, just a comparison, Catherine Cortez Masto, the sitting United States senator there, uh, won the Hispanic vote by nearly 40 points in 2016. I think you're going to see a, a single digit, if not parity, uh, uh, situation Whoa. on election day there. Really? I mean, that, it's just a, I, in my lifetime, Guy, I don't think I've ever seen any demographic shift 30 plus points in any state in this union, regardless of the issue. And so that is what's happening there. Clearly, Laxalt is running an incredibly impressive campaign. A really, really smart candidate with a track record of success, being the the former AG there, disciplined. And, you know, a lot of people didn't hear a lot about this race because, you know, frankly, he had his nose to the grindstone the whole way through. But I I think he's probably in the best position for a Republican pickup going into Election Day. Before we get to Pennsylvania, just quickly, if you spin around Wisconsin, North Carolina, Ohio— any nerves, any concerns about any of those? No, look, everything is close. But here's the way I look at midterms, Guy. Um, what generally happens in midterms is the party in the power, it, there's a referendum on them. And the question is how significantly it affects late-breaking voters. And, and it's one of the reasons why everybody says polling is off, right? Because at the end of the day, what happens at the at the end of an election cycle is those independent voters either move two to three points towards the party out of power, three to five points towards the party out of power, or on only one election cycle I've ever been a part of in 2014, five plus. And, and that's obviously a reflective of people's view of the president, people's view of the economy, people's view of the right track, wrong track, like in other words, is our country on the right track or the wrong track? Um, and, and all three of those have kind of come together to a point where I think that two to three point margin, we could exceed that in a lot of ways, right? And I think in North Carolina is a perfect example. It's like a one or two point race when you look at it in terms of the polling lately. That is one that I think you could see a two, three, four, five point margin on election day. I feel very good about Ted Budd uh, in North Carolina for Republicans. Okay. And I think that that is a similar phenomenon in a place like Ohio, where it's a redder state. 
Vance is up four or five points. I think he probably wins bigger than that. Ron Johnson, that is a very polarized state in Wisconsin, like 50-50 and just a tiny handful of like you can fit them in a phone booth, the persuadable votes <laughs> in, in Wisconsin is a turnout game. And just in terms of enthusiasm and everything else, I think Ron John is, is probably safe. You never you never say never, but I think he's probably in pretty good shape. Yes? Yeah, no, I think that's right. I think one of the undersold stories of this cycle is the Senate Republican outside group, Senate Leadership Fund. Uh, you know, they'll end up spending $40 million in Ohio, $40 million in, in uh, North Carolina, and, and, you know, $20, $30 million in Wisconsin. It helped try to bring to parity this unlimited number of, of dollars that Democrats have had here. I think Ron Johnson's won, run one of the best races in the country. He's really put Mandela Barnes on defense on the issue of crime. It seems to have been decisive. I feel good about that. J.D. Vance is going to be just fine in Ohio, uh, a Middletown uh, a native, somebody who's you know from the rural part of the state, and, and I think very representative of where Ohio is now uh, politically. All right, Pennsylvania. This is the one where Democrats feel like they've got the best shot at a pickup. Uh, the polls have shown for months now that they're right about that. John Fetterman leading for the first time today. Thanks to a couple new polls, Dr. Oz has now taken the lead just barely in the real clear politics average, first time in the cycle. But there's a lot of dissonance out there in the numbers. You know, like the Fox News poll has Fetterman up three or four that just came out. A couple other polls now have Oz up two or three. How do you read that one? So this is I mean, I think from previous times that we talked on on the show, this is one I've been a believer in the entire time. I, I, I think Democrats had a short window to try to disqualify Dr. Oz uh, when everybody in the country wasn't asking questions about whether or not John Fetterman was not only fit to serve, but what his record uh, uh, portrayed in terms of representations for Pennsylvania. As that's come into focus, I think you've seen that race move a lot. And it went from like a 12-point race in August to a five-point race at the end of September, to a two-point race, and now I think from a lot of polls showing Oz nudge ahead, clearly that debate had an impact, no question about it. Your late deciding voters anywhere in the country are less ideological, and they make decisions based upon who they think can serve them best, right? And I, I think when you compare those two candidates on the main stage and the one time they're going to be able to see them, that was a pretty clear indication, right? So um, I like our chances there. I think Dr. Oz squeaks by. I think there's going to be probably the tightest race in the nation, but I really do think Dr. Oz wins that one. If you go further north, this wasn't really on the radar even a couple of weeks ago as as plausible. It's looking a little bit more plausible, although you know we'll ask Chris Sununu, the governor up there, coming up later this hour, but at least some of the new polling suggests Don Bullduck could actually upset Maggie Hassan. And in some ways it would be an upset, in other ways not really, just looking at her numbers in that state. I'm not willing to, you know, make a call here that I think that he's going to beat her, but it seems entirely possible now, right? Certainly much more competitive than people ever imagined it could be. Part of the problem with New Hampshire is that they have this insanely late primary, basically an incumbent uh, protection racket where you know, you're voting in September on your party's nominee and you expect them to turn it around in six weeks and run a general election campaign. 
that has been very, very difficult. You saw, again, SLF, the same place that we're talking about, invest $20 million into that race, and it fundamentally changed the numbers for Maggie Hassan. Uh, that became a very, very close race. My guess is it's a two- to three-point race now. And, again, it goes back to what I was talking about in terms of how these midterms break. If this is a two- to three-point shift, uh, Maggie Hassan may survive. If it's three to five or five-plus, good Lord, you're going to be welcoming General Senator Don Baldock. Quickly, let's talk about Arizona. Two very interesting races out there, governor and Senate. Maybe some split ticketing. I'm not really sure. Arizona, read, Josh. Yeah, so, look, I think everybody's been sort of captivated by Carrie Lake and her governorship on, on, uh, run here on the conservative side. Incredibly gifted communicator. I mean, nobody takes uh, no guff like she does. And I think she's captivated a lot of the grassroots attention, which is going to be super, super helpful, not only for her race, but for Blake Masters' race. Uh, Masters has become a, a, a really disciplined, good candidate here down the stretch. My sense is that that is a very close race. You may have seen in the New York Times, uh, I think it was yesterday, that the, the, the libertarian candidate got out of that race yep. and endorsed Masters. That is one of those places where you're dealing with a one to two point margin where it may make a difference there. Um, again, very, very close. Uh, I hesitate to, to predict exactly how that thing's going to come out, but I, we certainly have a shot there. Yeah. Finally, Georgia. Runoff, no runoff? Uh, man, that's the biggest question, right? Because, you know, Georgia, like many southern states, has that 50 percent threshold that you have to meet. I think that at a minimum, Herschel Walker is going to win a plurality there. You've seen uh, Raphael Warnock, the incumbent Democratic senator, duck at 46. Despite everything that they've thrown at Herschel Walker, he has not been able to even come close to broaching that 50 percent mark. Herschel's been climbing a little bit, and he's had a really good month. He overperformed in that debate. Uh, he's run a disciplined campaign down the stretch. It would not be the weirdest thing in the world to see him win on election day. Yeah, I mean, it could happen, and especially, it's... Josh, if Brian Kemp blows it out, which he might. We'll see. We're getting awfully close. Josh Holmes, always enjoy the program, Josh. Talk to you soon. See you, guys. We'll be right back on The Guy Benson Show. I'm Guy Benson. We're back. This is actually a topic that we also tackled on the Outnumbered Couch earlier today, coming out of Michigan. So recently there was a debate between the incumbent Democratic governor, Gretchen Whitmer, and her Republican challenger, Tudor Dixon. And a lot of the polling has shown that Whitmer's supposed to win, but recently there have been a handful of polls showing this thing very close. They had a debate. Tudor Dixon gave an answer about parents and education. And a voter that she spoke to who was switching sides, becoming a Republican or at least voting Republican because of sexually explicit material that he discovered at his kid's school in the library. And he was very upset about it. And he decided that he was going to cross the aisle and vote for Dixon for governor in Michigan. Now, Stephen Colbert... And the Late Show at CBS, they clipped this and talked about it on their show. It's just like a Democrat talking point show. 
over there. And the whole joke was that Tudor Dixon had made this up. It never happened. It's a figment of her imagination. This isn't real. So this was Colbert and his team making fun of this moment in the crowd in New York, laughing, laughing, laughing. Cut 21. Dixon's not the only one worried about this issue. So is this guy she totally made up. I had a gentleman come up to me just a few nights ago, and he said, I found content in my school library describing how to have sex to my son. I went to the Democrats, and I said, I cannot believe that this is in there. Okay. (laughs) Fine. That happened. And he sort of puts it in quotes. The joke is, it's a made-up thing. Except it's not. This guy has stepped forward. He's a Muslim-American, Dearborn, Michigan, father of five. Have you seen some of these videos out of Dearborn with Muslim parents getting very angry about some of this insane, woke, sexualized stuff in schools? The wokes aren't really sure what to do with it because these Muslim-Americans are people of color and they're religious minorities and they're sort of very high up the totem pole on the woke grievance scale. But they're fighting against wokeness and sexualized classrooms, and for parental involvement in their kids' morals and education. So they're not really sure how to handle that. And sure enough, this guy spoke publicly at an event about this, and then when Colbert said what he said, he came forward again saying, no, I'm him. I'm real. I'm not fake. This is someone who said he had never imagined voting for a Republican, but when it comes down to his kids... He's going to do whatever it takes, and he is going to be voting Republican this year. This Muslim American, dad of five kids, that I guess just in the imagination of Colbert universe, and I think that stands for a very significant elite bubble, not just him, and all the comedy quote-unquote shows are in that bubble except for one, Gutfeld, 11 p.m. Eastern, Fox News Channel every night. You wonder why they're doing so well at Gutfeld. I think this is part of it. But they couldn't imagine that it would be true that someone like that would actually go to a Republican and care about these issues because they don't really know anyone living in a universe that is real to an awful lot of people. So you get the mockery and the sneering, and then this guy's like, hey, actually, no. What are you talking about? Of course I'm real. I'm right here. Tudor Dixon, who's the Republican, as I mentioned, you heard her in the clip, she was asked about this whole controversy, and her quote I thought was excellent. She said, quote, that's where Democrats are right now. You don't exist. Your stories are not important. As I mentioned on Outnumbered earlier, it's that type of anger over being marginalized, talked down to, ignored, smeared, erased, gaslit, that combination of issues and feelings, that is what we saw show up one year ago in Virginia, one year ago in New Jersey to a large extent. Big swings. And if we see anything close to that level of swing that we saw in Virginia New Jersey— what, 10, 11, 12 points off of the Biden margins in those states? If we see that across the country next week, buckle up. And I think there's a lot of people out there who feel like they take that dad side over the Colbert mockery and denialism, frankly, 
in a very visceral and personal way. Now, that might be a very close race in Michigan and some very important house races in that state as well. I want to make sure that we keep an eye on those in the upper Midwest. The Guy Benson Show continues. Governor Chris Sununu of New Hampshire up next. What's going on in his state? Looks like he's going to be all right. Should win comfortably. That Senate race getting awfully interesting. We'll ask him about that and much more next. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. We are back. It's the Guy Benson Show on this Thursday from New York. Thank you very much for being here. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. Podcast free every day. And with us now is the governor of the great state of New Hampshire. Chris Sununu is with us once again. Governor, great to have you back. Uh, it's great to be back. From the, I, and I appreciate you calling it the great state of New Hampshire. That's what I like to call it, too, man. How you been? I've been very well. I've been watching your state with great interest, especially recently because of all the goings on up there politically. Really not all that much drama in your reelection race. You've been wire to wire ahead by a large margin. Looks like you are cruising to a double-digit re-election in all likelihood. Why? Um, well, look, I, the, we, we, we got it going on in New Hampshire. I don't know a better way to say it. Yeah, we have the strongest population growth, super strong economy, lowest poverty rate, most personal freedom. Like, we, we're just we, – we, we have a system that really, really works. And it, it's hard work. Don't get me wrong. I mean, it has to be a team effort. But at the end of the day, I'm a big believer. It's not about politics. you got to get results. And uh, I have to get elected every two years, as you know. So if I'm not delivering, I'm going to get fired, and I probably should if we're not delivering. But we've been able to do it. We've been able to have a strong economy. Economy. People are, I mean, there's a recession coming. There's no doubt about that. But my job is to make sure New Hampshire is the last state in and the first one out. You know what I mean? And so keeping the economy strong and focusing on business and freedoms, that uh, it works. I mean, the, the model really, really does work. This big government stuff um, has just been a failure for everybody. So I don't know. We're, we're just very fortunate. By the way, it does help that I'm surrounded by places like Massachusetts and Connecticut and New York <laughs> and Maine and Vermont, the socialist uh, uh, compound of Vermont. Um, so I always say I don't have to outrun the bear guy. I just got to outrun the <laughs> idiot next to me, and and that makes me look really good. So uh, being here in New England, kind of that that you know star of freedom, if you will, uh, up here in New England and, and opportunity that uh, that definitely separ- separates us from the pack. Yeah, you're lapping some of those other states for sure in the race, but there are headwinds from D.C. that you sort of mentioned there, or at least alluded to. You can only do so much as a governor to fend off those headwinds, but how have you tried and how have you succeeded at least to some extent? Yeah. So look, the, the first thing you have to do is just be smart with the opportunities that they give you. So for example, when they talk about spending all this $5 trillion, it's crazy. It's an insane amount of money, but you know, someone said, well, you know, we should send that money back. And I said, well, it isn't like the federal government puts it back into their savings account or something like that. They're just going to send our money to New York or California. So spending that one-time money really, really smart is very, very important. And then when they just kind of create all these rules and regulations, um, we kind of by showing by design, if you will, we design better systems and we try to show a model and then we can push back on DC and say, hey, give us the flexibility. We can get better results. It's got to be about the outcomes. Um, the Biden administration is, is uh, I don't, 
I want to say they're closed door, but they're not very good listeners. I'm I'm, I'm being super polite as I come <laughs> close to the election here, guy. I'm trying to I'm trying to be as polite as I possibly can be to these knuckleheads. But they they just they are a one size fits all type model. New Hampshire is literally just the opposite. We are a local control, small government state. Focus on the individual. Wrap our services around the needs of the individual and get the heck out of the way of business. They they literally can't comprehend it. But the results speak for themselves. So um, we just try to lead by example um, and get other states. I mean, I love the concept of states' rights, empowering states to kind of friendly competition, if you will, create more opportunity than, than the next guy, and, and that drives things forward. It's, a, it's kind of the free market of government. That's what states are, right? That's why they call us the, the laboratories of democracy. And so when you kind of promote that type of model and have the results to back it up, um, people do take notice, which is pretty cool. Just a moment ago, you said, just as a matter of fact, that a recession is coming. We just had a mini one, and I know a lot of people are expecting a double dip and probably the second dip being a lot worse. That's what the forecasters are prognosticating, but you just sort of said it breezily like it's almost a a fact of life moving forward. What makes you so certain about that, and how can you sort of batten down the hatches ahead of that if it's coming? Look, I'm an engineer. Uh, I'm a math guy, and and, and the numbers don't lie. You cannot flood $5 trillion into the economy, have massive inflation, see interest rates skyrocketing, and think it's just all going to work out just fine. It's not. And, and already the, the, the inflation issue is, is here. One thing I, I do remind folks, and i got to be honest, I don't think enough folks are talking about this nationally. I've been talking, trying to talk to on CNBC and things of that nature. They released $5 trillion, but they actually – we haven't spent it yet. Everyone thinks we spent $5 trillion. We've allocated the money, mm-hmm. but the checks – only about a quarter of the checks have been cut. We're going to keep releasing this money into 24 and 25 and 26, which is a very slow and painful way to do it, and, 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 and it'll keep – uh, inflation really, really high. And what inflation does, as you know, it's the worst tax on the poor. So it, it, it bifurcates your economy. It creates the haves and the have-nots. And if you're in certain businesses, if you build roads for a living, if you're in construction, one-time investment, uh, where, where you have been blessed by the federal government to be so deemed as to have some of, of this money, you're probably going to be able to withstand inflation just fine. But if you are in businesses of discretionary income, travel and tourism, kind of that uh, the mid-level states and all on all of that, maybe in more rural areas, because so much of this money goes to the big cities, you're in trouble. And those families are going to feel a very big pinch, especially around housing, uh, around rental costs. Um, you know, it's it's just it's the worst thing you can possibly do to an economy. So, I, I'm sorry, I'm not trying to be the bearer of bad news. My my job is to own the issue, understand it, and and prevent it as much as possible. Hedge ourselves against it. Now we do it by not relying on on big government, not relying on on these types of big solutions. We have a lot of small businesses, private businesses in New Hampshire, they'll be able to uh, kind of take advantage of the local economic opportunities better than others. We have some very large uh, defense contractors here, and so they'll be okay for the most part. But it's going to hurt everybody. There's no doubt about it. Um, And it is going to come. uh, You won't see it probably until late 23, early 24, before the the repercussions start happening, because, you know, eventually the the more the checks go out, eventually the, um, well, the chickens have to come home to roost. No, that's like the chemotherapy right uh, to the cancer of inflation where the Fed comes in and just nukes the economy and you're going to see lost jobs. You're going to see negative growth or shrinking growth. I mean, that's just how this goes historically. I think that's why people are pessimistic on this front. Governor, I do want to ask you, I saw that you tangled a little bit with Chuck Todd over at NBC recently about the issue of being in touch with voters and who's living in a bubble. And I think you very sort of 
politely and cheerfully suggested that and posited that Chuck Todd and a lot of people in the mainstream news media are living in a bubble when it comes to voters' priorities. What was your point? Because I think that he was like trying to get you to say something else, and you were adamantly not taking that bait. Well, yeah. So the argument is, gee, is is inflation and the cost of goods and the cost of fuel, is that really more important to the voter than what happened in uh, the potential election fraud and the, uh, the big lie of 2020? And it was like, man, you, yeah, I just said, look, I, I like Chuck. I don't, we disagree politically on most everything, but I don't dislike him as a person or anything. But I said, man, you're living in a bubble. I said, if you and the media really think that the average voter is going to walk into the independent voter, right? They're going to walk into the booth this coming Tuesday and say, you know what? I can barely make a mortgage. I'm having trouble you know, putting food on the table. But boy, that election denial stuff of 2020, serious, I'm, I'm going to go there uh, with my top issue. No way. Voters vote what is in their very much selfish interest, as they should, by the way. What is best for their family? And that is getting inflation under control, fuel prices under control, tapping into our own resources. These things, these bad policies are really hitting people at a very real level. And if the media thinks that just focusing on the past of 2020, people vote for the future. They don't vote based on the past. I'm not saying the, the issue of 2020 shouldn't be dealt with. What happened there, what happened on January 6th, all of that has to be dealt with. They're not unimportant issues, but they are not the most important issue. They're not the issue driving the average independent voter. I think those are mostly issues where the Democrat base uses to justify, well, this is really important, and that's why I would never vote for a Republican, right? If they kind of use it as a justification. And so I just think mainstream media is either intentionally or unintentionally, but either way, out of touch either way with what is really happening with folks on the ground level. New Hampshire, as you know, we're a retail politics state, right? We're really a grassroots state who I don't care what your name ID is or how much money you spent here. Just ask Senator Hassan. She spent $50 million and she's about to lose. It does not matter, right? And she's going to lose to a guy that spent just a couple million bucks in Don Boldick. So it doesn't matter how much money you spend. You've got to connect with people about their issues at their level and, and, and un- have an understanding of it. Mainstream media really doesn't have that. And so I just had to, you know, straighten, straighten the issue out a little bit for, for Mr. Todd, and, and hopefully he goes forward with a new enlightenment from his uh, friendly <laughs> fellow Republican. Good luck. Um, let's, since you opened the door, talk about that Senate race in your state, because as I mentioned at the top, your race looks like it's cooked. You're going to win, whereas the Senate race is really, really tight. I've seen a few polls with the incumbent, Maggie Hassan, the Democrat, up slightly. Don Boldick, the Republican nominee, surging. And one or two polls now have him pulling ahead by maybe a point. I know that you guys don't have early voting, so momentum really matters a lot heading into next Tuesday in your state. Unless I misheard you, you just said Senator Hassan is about to lose on Tuesday. Do you really believe that? You think she's going to lose this race? Yeah, put it how you want. She's, she's going to lose or we're going to fire her. Either way, I think she's toast. It will come down to only a few thousand votes. There's no doubt about that. We're going to have very high turnout here. It's a very closely watched election. They had a debate last night. I think uh, General Bullock did very well. Uh, I think Senator Hassan, uh, although she's had the job for six years, she hasn't shown up uh, for five, five and a half of them. And it showed. It, it really showed. She just refused to answer questions, didn't have a grasp on issues. And, and that kind of really came through. And so um, 
um, during a debate when usually the incumbent should have an advantage. Uh, it didn't play out that way last night, and she did herself no favors. So I have no doubt that this is going to come down to the wire. Um, it's going to be there's going to be a bit of a surge, uh, kind of like what we saw in 16. Kind of a um, the non-typical voter will come out and really surge some of these uh, some folks ahead that typically wouldn't have maybe had a shot. And um, and I think he wins. I really do. Although I, in I, 16, know, in 16, Trump and Senator Ayotte, the Republicans, barely, barely lost in your state. Right. So I, I guess the environment nationally is better for Republicans right now. But Bolduc is also a much more untested candidate, I think is one way to put it. You said he had a good debate last night. He has said some very interesting things in the past, including about you. You, of course, endorsed his opponent in the primary. The Democrats spent gobs of money trying to get Don Bolduc as their opponent. They've got him. <laughs> they might have him for six years now. So we'll see what New Hampshire decides. You, of course, were for the, uh, the state Senate president last time you were on the air here. We talked about that. How has that relationship developed? Uh, didn't he call you Bolduc like a communist or something like that? Are you now <laughs> campaigning with him? Like, is that awkward at all? How's it going? No, look, yeah, he no, he said some. He had some choice words for me, and and we have a, a a history and a relationship, both good and bad, up and down, and so. But look, at the end of the day, it comes down to this: um, he's going to be far better, uh, a, a better, much much better U.S. senator than Senator Hassan, because look, he is an outsider. He is not beholden to absolutely no one, uh, to his credit, frankly. Uh, he's a war hero. He's focused on mental health issues. Um, yeah, he can be. He can be kind of. Um, uh, he's just different. I don't know a better way to say it. He's just different. But, you know, he's not this wild extremist that people portray him as by any means. And I think Hassan is praying that people buy into all this negative ads that they've bought tens of millions of dollars uh, to, to the point you just made. The Democrats, you know, helped get him elected in the primary. Mm-hmm. I mean, and now they're I really believe they're going to get exactly uh, what they asked for. And And by the way, that in itself is going to fundamentally change down the road. I mean, if you're a Democrat and you gave money to the Democrat Party, and they funded Don Bolduc's campaign in the primary, and now Don Bolduc is the – why would you give money to the Democrats again, right? So they're going to have a lot of, of answering to do on their side. But at the end of the day, this is New Hampshire. People just – they want something different. They want somebody that is willing to talk to them. Regardless of, of the issues and policies, we want someone that engages with us. He's, this guy's held 75 town halls. In the past three years, Hassan has held like zero like literally zero. Wow. So she's not engaging. She's refused to debate him. They only debated, I think, twice, um, only one on TV. You, you, you know, she said no to multiple, multiple debates. And, and people know that. And so there's a little bit of a, hey, if, you, if you're the incumbent and you can't talk to us and just answer straight up, straight questions, even though you're the one that's had the job for six years, what's going on well, here? Especially right? in either about state. us or it's about politics. Especially yeah. in New Hampshire. Like there's an expectation level in New Hampshire to really be hands-on at a granular level. She hasn't done that. And last point on her, Senator Hassan, I saw that she's out with a new ad or press release or some combination thereof really talking about and sort of flexing her independent muscles and how much she stands up to the Biden administration. I'm just trying to figure out, like, what alternate reality is that when you look at her voting record? I mean, this is sort of this 11th hour argument that she's making about Biden and her, you know, moderate independence sort of has her own streak. That is not really comporting with what she's actually done in Washington. Right. Uh, it was it was comical at the debate last night. She said, I, I pushed back on the Biden administration. She was literally campaigning with Jill Biden three days ago. 
I mean, it was just, it's a joke. I think Elizabeth Warren is coming up here this week and one of those liberal people you could ever imagine. So this concept that she's somehow an independent, no, no one's buying it. No one's buying a bit of it. And, and again, you know, considering she's an incumbent that spent $50 million and is now losing to uh, a, a complete outsider that has barely spent any money, that says, tells you everything you need to know about Maggie Hassan. Um, people just, they, they don't want her in the job anymore. Thank you so much. N- nothing personal, but you're not doing a good job for the state. We're all moving on. And I think that's what's going to happen Tuesday. Chris Sununu is the 82nd governor of the state of New Hampshire. He's on the ballot on Tuesday in the Granite State. And, Governor, it's always great to have you here. Thank you so much, and we'll have you back soon. Uh, you bet. Thank you, brother. Be good, everyone. Don't forget to vote. And the Guy Benson Show is back right after this. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. We're back. It's the Guy Benson Show, and it's time for... It's a Guy Benson Show Jim Crow on Steroids Georgia Voter Suppression Update. The suppression is getting really bad in Georgia. The voter suppression, Jim Crow 2.0, worse than Jim Crow, according to President Biden. In the early voting, they have now blown past 2 million votes. Shattering records again. Raphael Warnock, the Democrat running for Senate down there, thanked God that it's happening. The voter suppression is heaven sent, apparently. He called it Jim Crow. Now he's celebrating it. We'll see if he's still celebrating on election night and the day after. I think that race might go to a runoff, although there's a poll out today. I'm skeptical, but a poll out today has Herschel Walker winning outside the margin of a runoff. We'll see. Do not forget who lied to you about voter suppression, why they did it, and how they're continuing to lie right now about it. The exact opposite of what they said was going to happen has actually happened. At the very top of the list, I think, in terms of contempt, would be Stacey Abrams and Raphael Warnock. President Biden right there with them. Biden went even further than them, as he so often does. Worse than Jim Crow. What an insult. What a disgusting insult. And then there were the companies and the organizations that went along with it, went along with the lie. The Democrats and the activists Scared them. They said, okay, so let's say something. Let's do something. Major League Baseball, disgraceful. Delta Airlines, Coca-Cola, had they learned their lesson? Or are they going to do this nonsense again? Incidentally, Stacey Abrams at her final debate against Brian Kemp suggested that all of the sheriffs in Georgia, 107 of them endorsing Kemp, are racist, or most of them are racist, because they want to put black people in jail and take them off the streets. A despicable smear. Raphael Warnock, has he even been asked about that? Have reporters been chasing him down, throwing a microphone in his face, or does that not really happen with Democrats? Based on some of the things Warnock has said in the past about the police, he might agree with her. I doubt he'd say it, but as his ex-wife said, after there was a domestic violence incident at their house, he's a great actor, she said, as she choked back tears. We know all about Herschel's problems, shortcomings, flaws. Raphael Warnock is neck and neck with him in that race. Final hour of the Guy Benson Show coming up. Bill Hemmer, who will be manning the big map here at Fox News on election night. He joins us in studio to talk all about it straight ahead.
It's 5 o'clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy Benson. It is the happy hour on the Guy Benson Show. Thank you so much for listening. 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern every weekday. And then this last hour, 5 to 6 Eastern, is the happy hour. It is sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink, which is just delicious and fantastic. And we recommend it if you're 21 plus only, of course. Always drink responsibly. TheLongDrink.com. All the info right there as they really expand and become a force here in the U.S., a taste of Finland in America. Our website is GuyBensonShow.com. And you've got everything you need right there. You can follow us on social media, at Guy Benson Show, Twitter, and Instagram. Catch me tonight. I'm supposed to be on with Waters in the 7 p.m. hour Eastern on FNC. Then I've got Newsroom tomorrow morning on FNC, Varney on FBN. We are sprinting to the finish here in the election season. GuyBensonShow.com, our home here on the radio. And with us here in studio in New York is our colleague Bill Hemmer, co-anchor of America's Newsroom which I'll be on tomorrow, Monday through Friday, 9 to 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the News Channel. He's also a huge part of Democracy 2022, our election night coverage on the News Channel, starting 6 p.m. Eastern on Tuesday night. I'll be a smaller part of that coverage. Bill, it is great to see right you. On, guy. Nice to see you, too. So in person, I want to just ask you a behind the scenes sort of pull back the curtain type question. There are so many moving parts on election night. Yeah. So much data rumors that start flying around, incomplete information, and we're on the air trying to make sense of it all for the audience at home, usually a huge viewing audience on election night. There's a lot at stake, a lot of eyeballs glued to the TV. What does the preparation look like? It doesn't just magically happen next Tuesday. There's a lot of work that goes in, right? There there is, and to be honest with you, this started eight months ago. And then the meeting started six months ago, and we met throughout the summer once a week, and... And then you start getting into other groups and you subdivide the amount of work that you that needs to be done. Um, <clears throat> for me, I thought the primary season was actually a good learning tool. Be- we're going back to last April and May sure. now. Because um, you saw how the field was winnowed down and you learned about the candidates. And you learned what was working and what wasn't. And you saw surprises that you know maybe you didn't expect. And a lot of those people are no longer candidates. But some of them are. And you, you've seen now how upsets, for example, New Hampshire, Don Bulldog. I, I think a couple of days ago, about a week ago, everybody had him left for dead. And maybe he's not. Well, we just had Governor Sununu on the show last hour. He predicts Bulldog is going to win. I saw him in Utah about a month ago, and he said the same thing. I, you're right about that. Um, it's interesting to me how things can, can change, but yet they're not, they're not definite yet. No. And... You, you can think what you want, and you, you can read whatever you want and draw your own conclusions, but nothing is really determined until at least next Tuesday, if not beyond. Now, in your role on election night, there's an added layer of preparation probably because yes. of the famous touchscreen map, right. right? You're the map guy, and that's, I would imagine, a fair amount of pressure because 
you've got to touch that thing, and that's got to behave the way work. you need it to, or else yeah. it's like live TV. So talk <laughs> about like the reps. Are you like a quarterback in like the film room? You, <laughs> you need to practice. <laughs> um, you need some reps. Uh, there's no doubt about that. I think our software has gotten better every year. But this year is different, and I, I gave you somewhat of an incomplete answer the first time. So I, here's how I'd finish that out, is that my job is to try and figure out how these, these House districts are going to break. Um, the Senate and the governor is a little easier to study based on previous elections because you're essentially looking at states as a whole. And within those states, it's counties. And you can get down to the precinct level if you want, but it may not be necessary unless it's really razor tight. We're going deep into the night or even we haven't made a call and it's Wednesday afternoon. And, Guy, you're saying, well, what the hell's going on in Pennsylvania? Why can't we make a call? Which is kind of interesting, and I'll double back to that in a second. The thing that's challenging about House districts this year is that the census drew, they, census allowed – New lines. Yeah, Democrats or Republicans, whoever had the Democratic or the um, political leadership in the state, to draw different lines. Now, now the question then becomes, who's that favor? What town was knocked out? What was included? Um, does their strategy help their party, or is it possible the strategy to divide and conquer actually hurts the party? They call that a dummy mander. Okay. Correct. Yeah, instead of a gerrymander. And, and do, you, do you know where this is being watched right now? Nevada in particular. Nevada is one of them. Very good. I know you knew your stuff. Yeah, I'm here. Um, I see you. And we're going to see whether or not the strategy works because Las Vegas favored Democrats by almost 25 points. And they went in there and they divided the pie to try and help two other candidates around that area. Yeah, it might backfire. And it might. We'll see. So there's, there's four districts in Nevada and three of them are said to be contested. The other one's Illinois because they kind of went into Chicago and divvied that up a little bit too. So yeah, but th- th- that's an extra challenge on top of making sure that the technology that you as a viewer is watching in real time does what you expect it mm-hmm. to do. And you want to just like look and seem totally fluid, but yeah. it's like it's like the duck placid on the surface, scrambling yeah. like crazy beneath the surface, right? Uh-huh. Pedaling, pedaling away. Correct. You wanted to make a point about Pennsylvania. Yeah. Um, I think viewers need to understand we're trying to make – this is part of our coverage so that people get it. There's a big mail-in vote in Pennsylvania, but according to state law under the Republican legislature. Now, yep. Okay. Just like 2020. They didn't change the rules. Um, I don't know why, but it's the polls open at 7 a.m. I'll try and make this as easy as I can. They will start processing the mail-in ballots starting at 7 a.m. I did not say count. They will start processing them. They will count the day of vote first. So if I mail in a ballot two weeks ago, mine will be processed and counted last. It's crazy. If Guy Benson votes at 2 o'clock that afternoon, your vote is is, uh, counted first. Why is this important? The trend says that Democrats vote by mail, Republicans vote in person. I think by and large that's still true, but I think it's changing. Um, but in PA, I think it's pretty true. <laughs> four to one so far in the early vote. Sorry, I ate popcorn right before I came in. <laughs> Should not do that. Jim Bognett is a Republican who ran for a district in northeastern Pennsylvania. It's called Congressional District 8. He lost to a Democrat by the name of Matt Cartwright. They're having a rematch next Tuesday. Bognet's got a pretty good chance to win this. On election night 2020 at midnight, he went to bed. He was leading by how many votes? 10,000. He lost that race the next day by 13,000 
votes. So you see what the difference is. And we're going to try and try and pull the curtain back. And by the way, just editorially, I think this is a crazy way to do it. The way that Florida does it is the correct way to do it. You process and count the votes as they come in early, and then you have all of that. You publish it, and then you wait for the election day votes to come in. If the Republicans can catch up, great. If they can't, so be it. That is a system that makes sense to me. This system that Pennsylvania created for itself, I think, really fueled some of the nuttiness and craziness in 2020 because people said, oh, there's this – Fraudulent blue wave that showed up. This is the system, how they designed it, and they didn't change it. It's going to be the same thing again. They they did not change it. With regard to your point on Florida, they're they're fast counters, too. And you're going to know early in the night how some of these districts are going. I think 801. I think statewide, I think 801 p.m. Uh Statewide, I think they're going to be able to call statewide races the Republicans. Well, um, Ronna McDaniel thinks that they can flip the House based on four districts alone in Florida that she thinks they'll gain. Wouldn't surprise me. Yeah. Wouldn't surprise me. Let's talk briefly about Virginia because that's where I live. It's one of the East Coast states. Yeah. Seven o'clock. And if we want to, yep. If we want to get a sense pretty early in the night of how things might go, and Virginia, it's not perfect as an analogy for the rest of the country, but I think it's Virginia two, Virginia seven, Virginia 10. Very good. Right. 10 is a, a real tough one for the Republicans. If, if Virginia 10 falls to the Republicans, you know, Katie, bar the door, bar the door, because it is going to be a night. But the other two, Virginia seven, yeah. close ish, Virginia two, toss up. Those seem like some pretty important early yeah. bellwethers. Uh, um, they are. And they close early. And I think Virginia counts early. And I think we found that out a year ago with yep. Glenn Youngkin. Yes. And I, I think the case I would make for Virginia is that there was a big Republican turnout that year. I still think those voters are there. I still think those voters are going to vote. Um, I, I'd make the same case for New Jersey that slipped under the radar a year ago. Those swung 12 points or whatever. Well, I mean, Phil Murphy only won by about three points in a a state that was heavily Democratic. It was not polled. There was no media attention, and the underdog almost made it happen. My point is that in New Jersey, the reason why at least four of these congressional districts are being fought over is because the voters who voted a year ago are still there, and they're going to vote again. Now, with regard to Virginia, I think there's two very important things to understand. Virginia, too, is the southeast corner of the state. So that's like Chesapeake. That's like Norfolk. Um, the Republicans drew a more favorable line for Jen Kiggins. She's a veteran. She flies helicopters. And she's a really good candidate. Elaine Lurie is the Democrat. She's a veteran. She's had the seat since 2018. Heavily military. Both are veterans. Very good race. I think Jen Kiggins has a very good chance of winning that race. Not by a lot, but two points. I would say in Virginia 7, that's Abigail Spanberger. She also wanted so – there's so many women who won in the Democratic wave of 2018 who are still in office. Spanberger is one of them. But her district used to be the west side of Richmond, Virginia. Okay, that used to be Dave Bratt's district, and it was Eric Canner's district before that. What Spanberger did was pretty extraordinary, winning in 18 and winning again in 2020. This is an the, easier district for her. It was. The new one. It was. But this new district is easier for her, correct? It's right. closer to northern Virginia. They literally guy they, they took it this way and they put it up here. Um, but it's a pretty good contest. I think, yes, Lee Vega, uh, her background is law enforcement. She's a pretty good candidate, too. Uh, for that district, and that's why it's being contested. Here's what I would summarize. Two, seven, and you mentioned ten. Hung Kao is a very interesting guy. He was born in Saigon. His family immigrated to the United States. 
Um, he's a Navy veteran, and he's trying to knock out Jennifer Wexton, who also won in 2018. Mm-hmm. I mean, the similarities are amazing here, okay? That's Barbara Comstock. His di- very good. His district is more heavily Democratic the way it's weighted. Here's what I would think about. If two goes down, Republicans are going to have a good night. If seven and two go down, it's going to be a wave. If two, seven, and ten go down in a state like Virginia— I don't know. Is that wave 50 feet high? Tsunami. It could be. Yeah. It's Hammer Time with Bill Hammer here on the Guy Benson Show. We're not done yet. I want to talk about New York next after this. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. Bill Hammer with us here in studio on the Guy Benson Show. Let's talk New York. You live here. We've talked a lot during the pandemic about your experiences here in New York. You just referenced what happened a year ago, just across the river in New Jersey. Not exactly the same state, but both very blue, New York bluer. But there are half a dozen, seven maybe, House seats being fought over across the state of New York. At least. At least. And you've got this governor race here that is really fascinating. I can't bring myself to actually believe that Kathy Hochul can manage to lose this thing, but I can't discount it. Anymore, at least as easily as I did. Yeah, there's there's so much to say about that. And it also takes forever to count in this state, doesn't Uh, it? Honestly, I, I, I don't know. You know, they rent the rank choice for the mayor and they said, come back in a week. And we came back in a week and they said, come back in another week. And we came back another week and they said, give us one more. <laughs> mm. I, which I, I don't know how you feel about rank choice voting, but I, I, I think the wrinkles need to still be ironed out. I like it in theory. I know the Aussies do it. I think the way it plays out in reality doesn't make sense in America, mm-hmm. especially with all the distrust where it's all this behind the scenes black box reallocating it. I think it I'm not shows a, more distrust. I'm not a fan. Um, you can prove to me that it's a better system if Australia uses it. Tell me why it's great. <clears throat> I think people want to know now, especially with this distrust level that you yes. mentioned, get the information out faster, not slower. New York. In 1994, George Pataki ran as a Republican and won as governor. He was going against Mario Cuomo, who was coming off his 12th year in office. Uh, Crime was a mess. New York City was a disaster. Pataki won. The first of three terms in New York. But the last time he won was 20 years ago in 2002. What's interesting that I picked up this past week, a year before, Christy Todd Whitman won the governor's office in New Jersey as a Republican. Uh, you can argue whether she's still a Republican today because some of the She's a moderate Republican, 93. Exceedingly moderate, 93. Right. George Allen also won as governor of Virginia that year. Started a long string of Republicans winning these big statewide races. Also in 1993, Rudy Giuliani was elected mayor in New York. New York City was on its knees then. Lee Zeldin believes that he, if he gets 35% in the boroughs, he's a winner. The margin is a minimum of 30%. He's shooting for 35. That's the number to look out for. Kathy Hochul is not from the borough. She's from Buffalo, New York. 35 is tough, by the way. I'm not saying it's impossible. That's tough in New York City for a Republican. New York City is 7 to 1 Democrats to Republicans. So your listeners understand, when you go into the – where do you vote? Virginia. When you go into the ballot box in New York, right, you get to the issues and you get to the state Supreme Court. There is not a Republican on the ballot. For the U.S. states, uh, sorry, for the New York State Supreme Court. It's all D. Mm. You have to, like, do your homework. Who's the least crazy? Those are your options. Can (laughs) Zeldin win? I think he can. It would be 
it would have to be part of the red tsunami that's 50 feet high to make it happen. Let's close on some sports. Let's start with baseball. What a weird World Series I so think far. It's, it's amazing. Right? So you've got two nights ago, the Astros get lit up. They lose 7 nothing. five home runs by the Phillies. Place is rocking. Last night, the Phillies don't even get a hit. They get no hit by this combined effort of the Astros pitching staff back-to-back nights. It's weird. That's a wacky game, isn't it? I think it's great for Fox. I think it's great for a sport that a lot of people have frankly lost interest in. And I think it's great for the young generation of Americans who are off playing lacrosse and doing a lot of the things that are more familiar to them. Yeah, baseball's great. I just wish I didn't have to root for the Phillies here's the, <laughs> against, I, against hey, Houston. Here's, here's the thing I would do. I would start the games earlier. Well, I'd, I'd do the same thing for well, the NBA playoffs. I think we both I, know why that doesn't happen. I'd do the same thing for the NFL. I think there's probably some people in this very building you could probably talk to about that, and yes. they'd probably laugh you out of the room <laughs> because I think there's a bit of money to be made there. I agree. Uh, I don't know if it's a sore spot, but I have mm-hmm. to ask you about the Bengals. Yeah. Eh, I mean, what, 500? It was dreadful. It, that, that game against Cleveland was really What's going really on? Good. Because uh, they were they, so good last they, year. They've had a few key injuries over the last two weeks. Key injuries now. Jamar Chase is one of them. Um, I also think that any time they have played a great defensive front, a la Dallas, Cowboys are great up front. Mika Parsons, they, it, it's a real Exposed. challenge. It's a real challenge for them. And I, I, I thought the defensive front going into that game for Cleveland was really good. Jadavion Clowney is still a good player. Miles Garrett might be one of the best defensive ends in the country, or one of them. And they just they gave our line a handful. Does it and feel like they, a coming back down to earth no, situation? No, not yet. Okay. All right. Not yet. <laughs> he, he won't. He yeah. We have no call. There's no Bill Hammer decision desk call <laughs> yeah. on the Cincinnati Bengals season just yet. Anyway, I'm hoping my best for my team, and I hope they're not as dreadful as they showed the other night. Bill Hammer, it's great to see you. See decision you desk and the whole thing. Democracy 2022, Tuesday night, Fox News Channel, starting at 6 p.m. Eastern time. I'll be a part of it. He'll be a huge part of it. Brett and Martha anchoring the whole crew there. And then looks like I'm joining you guys tomorrow on okay. Newsroom. Awesome. I will see you then. 9 to 11 Eastern on Fox News Channel. That's tomorrow morning. Bill Hemmer here in studio on The Guy Benson Show. Thanks, Bill. Thank you, Guy. We'll be right back. You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. It is the happy hour. It is the Guy Benson Show on this Thursday, New York City. Thanks for being here. GuyBensonShow.com. That's our website. Podcast is always free every day on demand. Earlier in the program, Senator Marco Rubio of Florida was here. He joined us days before his re-election fight in the Sunshine State. Here's part of my interview with Marco Rubio. What on earth is happening in Miami-Dade County? Why is that so significant? Well, I think there are two things that are happening at once. Uh, the first is... Is, well, three things. The first is there's an extraordinary amount of excitement and interest in this election among Republican and Republican-leaning voters. And so they're coming out to vote, and they're coming out to vote in good numbers. And there's just more Republicans because the state has changed demographically. There are half a million more Republicans as a raw number today in Florida than there were in 2018. I think there's 20 or 30,000 more Democrats, even though the state has added 1.6 million voters in four years. There's half a million more Republicans, only you know like 30 or 40,000 more Democrats. So the numbers are on your side, and there's more excitement. The second is that there's no motivation on the Democratic side. I mean, the 
the, the ticket hasn't excited them. Biden hasn't excited them. The issues they have focused on hasn't moved them. Uh, they, they may not vote for Republican, but they don't seem to be very interested in voting in the election. And so you're seeing that dynamic play out. And then the third is just the, the, the direction of the country. It is hard for your party to control the White House, the House, and the Senate. And everything's gotten worse over the last 22 months. Inflation, the border, uh, crime. And people reward you by allowing you to remain in power. And, and then the you know, and they have a lot to blame, not just for causing all this, but for what they have focused on. It, it, what people are worried about every day, people on a fixed income and working families, is everything costs more. And I'm not making – their paycheck is not growing nearly as fast as what, what's going out, you know, what they have to pay for food, for gas, et cetera. And you have a White House that not only not, does not talk about it, but when it talks about it, it's everyone else's fault. It's not theirs. It's Putin's fault. It's a global phenomenon. It's transitory, whatever you want to say. But they never want to accept responsibility because if they did, they'd have to do something about it, and they can't do anything about it. They, they can't produce more American oil because their fringe crazies in their party will go bonkers, and, and they, can't, they, they, they can't do that. So um, I think that's the dynamic you're seeing play out in Florida, and I hope it's playing out in states. But look, that's only as good as it continues. People have to continue to come out and vote. I don't want people hearing this and thinking, I'm hearing it's all a done deal down there. There's no point in me voting. I mean, that's not accurate. We got to continue to to, to keep uh, the pedal to the metal yeah, here. Build the wave. The Be the wave, right? It doesn't happen by accident. People have to actually do it. And just to quickly drill down on Miami Dade, because here's the thing: I've been following politics for a while. I remember not that long ago, Miami Dade was one of those blue wall counties in Florida for the Democrats, and they would run up big, big numbers in Miami Dade. And the reporting is that they're worried they could lose it to the Republicans, to you guys this year. What's what's happening there? What's the shift? Well, I mean, first of all, you're seeing it in the turnout. I think actually there's more Republicans have voted early than Democrats. And when I say early voting, understand we, by the end of tonight, maybe up to as much as 40 percent of what is going to vote in this election will have already have voted. So that's a pretty good indicator of where this is headed. But the second thing that's happened is really is among Hispanic Americans that, that live in South Florida. And it's not the Hispanic angle. That's certainly what they are. It's um, they happen to also be disproportionately working class people and small business owners. And they are voting like working class and small business owning voters. They, they just happen to be Hispanic, but their voting and their interests are not indistinguishable from that of most working class and Americans and small business owners. And that is, you know, they don't want schools indoctrinating their kids. They don't want criminals roaming the streets doing whatever they want. They are not in favor of chaotic, out of control, 5,000 people a day, mass migration at our border. They don't think that's good for the country and they don't want it. They're being hurt by inflation. And they look at a Democratic Party that's focused on all the wrong things and in some cases has adopted lunatic positions, you know, like, you know, wh- wh- why are we prominent leaders in America that are openly advocating the use of medicines and surgeries to alter the gender of children as young as 10, 13, 14 years of age? I mean, it's just something that was unimaginable 10 years ago that any mainstream politician would be out there talking about these things. And this has now become almost a litmus, litmus test in the Democratic Party. That's just completely unrelatable to a working class small business owner, Hispanic American. And on that priorities point, just in the last few days, what last night we had President Biden giving another speech on democracy and how it's all going to die, basically, if Republicans win these elections, if if voters vote for Republicans elections and democracy dies. It's sort of an interesting argument to make. He also went on this whole song and dance about windfall profits and the oil companies and raising taxes, which just seems so desperate and ridiculous. But this is like an incoherent, flailing closing argument from the Democrats, that that probably makes you feel good if this is what they've got. 
Yeah, and I don't even know if that really is a closing argument, to be honest with you, because there's no – I mean, they can't be that incompetent and, and that guilty of political malpractice to think that that's going to change the direction this election's headed. I actually think what he is now beginning to set up, uh, knowing that they're going to suffer these losses, is this is what the narrative they want to create for his battles with a Republican majority in Congress. Oh. I think that that's what they're setting up is, yeah, they're blocking – I want to do this, I want to do that, but these MAGA Republicans, these anti-democratic people – uh, that they, they will not give me what I want. They won't give me what we're for. I think he's trying to – it's not going to work either because the things we want are widely supported by the American people. But I, but I think he's starting – they're trying to start laying out their their, uh, their narrative of who they're going to be fighting against here for the next two years. Um, I, I can't imagine that they think that that is actually going to uh, move the needle uh, because no one, no one believes democracy – threatened. And if it is, then it's by people like Hillary Clinton, who are still on the air talking to the state now having to answer for why she called Donald Trump an illegitimate president after 2016. And Stacey Abrams, who said she didn't really lose in 2018. And a plethora of other Democrats who claim voter suppression and, and that votes uh, aren't. In fact, that I didn't hear it, but I've been heard from multiple people, that crazy actress that spoke at that um, rally that Demings had with Biden said that we were me and DeSantis were actively out there intimidating voters from coming out to vote. Mm. I don't, all I know is I spent more money than I wanted to uh, trying to let people know there's an election and encouraging them to come out and vote. Yeah, I mean, that's right. And you mentioned Hillary Clinton and Stacey Abrams. Someone who supported their conspiracy theories and election denialism is now the spokeswoman, the chief spokeswoman, uh, spokeswoman for the president of the United States. Karine Jean-Pierre is an election denier as well. And, you know, she gets hired by this White House to speak on behalf of the president. Uh, finally, Senator Rubio, I see that you're going to be on special report tonight on Fox News Channel with Brett Baer. They're promoting you on that show and also your old friend, Charlie Crist, who I guess is running for governor. Um, now is a Democrat. Is he still a Democrat? He seems to change yeah. around a lot. No, I think he's finally settled in there and um, <laughs> he'll have the he'll have the rare and distinct honor of having lost to uh, me in 2010 and then Rick Scott in 2014 and now Ron DeSantis in 2022. <laughs> so it's almost like a rite of passage. He's for making the rounds. Statewide. That full interview with the Florida Senator available online, GuyBensonShow.com. You can also go to our podcast, which is free on demand every day, GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. When we come back, the home stretch was producer Christine pranked yesterday. I am not responsible. We'll discuss that straight ahead on the home stretch. For the full interview and more, go to GuyBensonShow.com. Home stretch on Friday Eve on the Guy Benson Show from New York City. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. Podcast is always free. I will mention this again tomorrow, but just some programming notes here. I am scheduled and things change. Things are in flux. It's live television getting close to an election. So just keep that in mind. But I'm scheduled to be on tonight with Jesse Waters toward the end of the 7 p.m. hour on Fox News Channel Eastern Time. Tomorrow morning, I'm scheduled to appear on America's Newsroom around 9.30, I believe. Then with Stuart Varney on Fox Business, I believe in the 11 o'clock hour. We'll see. Saturday, I'll be hosting the big Saturday show, 5 p.m. Eastern time here in New York. That's on Fox News Channel. And it's a fun group, too. Carly Shimkus, Katie Pavlich, Charlie Hurt, yours truly. That's 5 p.m. Eastern on Saturday. On Sunday, I'm up early for Fox & Friends in studio, so Fox & Friends weekend. Then Sunday at noon, a special weekend pre-election edition of Outnumbered. 
I was on Outnumbered Today on the couch for that hour. Back on the couch on Sunday, although apparently it's going to be not in the usual studio. It's going to be an outdoors edition of Outnumbered, weather permitting. So that'll be kind of cool. Harris Faulkner and company and me. Hashtag one lucky guy on a Sunday. And then Monday, the night before the election, I'm supposed to be on Gutfeld. So write that all down. Set your DVRs. Set your reminders on your phone if you want to catch me on the tube. There's a lot of that coming up. And then I will be part of Fox's election coverage as well on Fox News Channel from D.C. Tuesday night. Got a couple hits planned and might be staying on standby late into the night reacting to numbers and news as it comes in. So I hope you'll be watching on Tuesday night in particular. With all of that said, Producer Christine, you told me something yesterday I did not realize or know. Earlier this hour, we were talking to Bill Hemmer here, and we were talking specifically about a few states, mostly in the east, although we got into Nevada a little bit as well. He mentioned New Jersey. There are a couple races, and Christie, Governor Christie, mentioned this yesterday, too. A couple races that could be interesting on the House side in Jersey. Really, one of them is considered a toss-up. And I did not realize that you live in that district. You are in this critical swing district that might be part of a red wave. So there's a lot of responsibility here. And I want to make sure, because I think sometimes you need help being responsible, that you have an actual plan to vote that you can stick to because you have an opportunity, I think, to vote early. There's different things that you can do. Do you have a rock-solid plan to vote? Yeah, I do. You want to hear it? Please. I go to the polling place and I vote. When, though? And like On election day. What time, though? So it's probably going to be early. I have to check and see. What time do they open in uh, see, New Jersey? This is why oh, I asked. Oh, right. I should have probably. This is I why I want to take Megan. What time do they open in New Jersey? Do you know that? I would guess 7 or 8 a.m. Okay. So if guess. it's Yeah. So what I'm going to do is get Megan right a little early for school. She's going to come with me. We're going to vote because I want her to get the sticker. But what if there's long lines? We wait. You wait. But what if she has a school? I sign her in late. Yeah, because I guess election day, would you make it here? Because you've got a very busy day I, here. So not, yeah. So then I might be a little late. Do not call the bosses on me. But I will be, once I get here, I will be here till. The point is you have to vote. Yes. It's really important for you to vote. I will vote. I, I mean, all eyes on cookie. Not the race. Now, I do have to ask you, without outing him too much, are we concerned about your husband's vote in terms of canceling you out? Should we try to suppress Bobby's vote? It's getting worse and worse day by day. I didn't even. It's do we need to suppress his vote? Can we? Should we do some Jim Crow two point oh Bobby suppression update? You want me just like kidnap him, put him in a closet somewhere? Maybe tell him the election day is Wednesday and see if he believes it. Go Jersey on him. I mean, there's a whole bunch of things we could do. Let's discuss that off the air. Probably best, just in case. Here's another crucial thing, though, because they'll be looking at the exit polls, right? In these very important races, who's showing up to vote, really getting into the nitty gritty numbers, and one of the key demographics that they follow is by age. And, Christine, I'm wondering if you will count as a senior citizen voter, like not even a boomer anymore. Are you a senior citizen voter at this point? Because what just happened to you? I'm not asking this just to be, like, petty and to tease you. You just received a fascinating phone call yesterday. Was it you? Did did you put somebody up to that? 
I don't even know what you're talking about. So you're going to have to tell us what happened. And then I received a phone call yesterday and they're like, hello, you know, Christine, last name. And they said, uh, would you like to review your Medicare benefits for the year? And I said, for me, it's not funny, Dan. Nobody's laughing here. Guy. Was it a scam? So ready for this. So at first I'm thinking, oh, okay. And I go, you know, you're about 25 years too early. And he goes, wait, what? And I said, I'm not on Medicare. They're between five and 25 years too early. Guy. In that range. I told him, I said, I'm not on Medicare. And he goes, but I have a whole profile on you. So then I said to him, oh, right. And now you're going to tell me that I need to give you like my social security number and my banking, you know, routing mm-hmm. number in order to fix this. And he All goes, right. no, <laughs> he goes, I actually have to figure out why you're in the system. And he goes, have you been on disability in the past 24 months? And I said, no. I said, I have private insurance. I've been at work this whole time, and I'm 41. And he goes, wow, I do not know how this is all messed up. But, yeah, here you are in the system saying you're under Medicare. So is this Medicare fraud that you've somehow been looped into? or Are you saying I committed fraud? Well, it sounds like either you've committed Medicare fraud or... You're a senior citizen. Okay, obviously, I'm not a senior citizen, and I don't commit fraud. I mean, fraud, I'm, just, fraud. Look, I'm just looking at, you know, the facts here. Well, I'm thinking when I hung up the phone that— You did not give him any nothing, sensitive information, did you? Nothing. He didn't want anything from me. Mm. I was waiting this whole time. I'm like, oh, okay, you want a credit card? Mm-hmm. What, what, you know, like waiting for something. Nothing. He like was I'll just as throw baffled. in a free fortune teller. He was just as baffled as I was. Huh. He was very concerned. <laughs> wow. Yeah. And then he said, are you on Medicaid? And I said, no. Not on anything. I have private insurance. My first thought when she texted it to us was that you guy had done this and set this up as a home stretch bit. And I was like, that's brilliant. It's genius. I wish I'd thought of that. Well, also, if I had done this in any sort of serious way, that's probably a crime. Right? <laughs> I could have had someone call posing to be right, that's this person, mean, yes. but it didn't like it didn't occur to me to do anything like that. It does not give me any confidence in the government. If you're signed up for apparently a whole profile of benefits as a senior citizen, where you could just be like mooching off of taxpayers for decades. Well, you know, five years to two and a half decades of benefits that you're not eligible for yet. That is crazy. But you then started to actually think that it was a prank that I had done this. One hundred percent thought it was either you, Dan, Wyatt. I didn't think it really it was Wyatt. What if it was? What if it was literally Wyatt? Well, he's the one that did the French onion soup to me. So. Oh, that was at my behest, though. The French onion soup springing that on you. Where we just sandbagged you, although you deserved it. You made a bet, you lost, and finally you had to pay up. No, this, I did not do this, and I wish I had thought of something like this because that is funny. Wyatt, are you responsible for this? I am not responsible for this, but I just want to take one step back and go to the beginning of this segment. 
Christine, you need a plan to vote. This is very important election, and you need to make sure you have a plan to vote. I am I am going home this weekend to vote early because I screwed up my my mail in ballot voting form and I won't make it in time. So you have to make sure you have a plan to vote. To all of our listeners out there, make sure you have a plan to vote. Very important election. Thank it's, you. No, guy, you've created a monster. He's out of control. Thank you, teacher. I mean, he's is he wrong? Yeah, but my gosh, like this is all he thinks about. Is what the election? Yes. Well, I mean, he's election Wyatt right now. And you know, he gets into his phases. You know, war Wyatt, why why the clown? We'll we'll get back to another Wyatt after the election, but he is he's got his eye on the ball right now. He wants to make sure that your vote counts on election day in New Jersey in a very important race. Five days to go. We've got you covered here, wire to wire on The Guy Benson Show. Podcast free every day, GuyBensonShow.com, plus bonus Benson on the weekends, plus all the TV that we just talked about. We are going to be busy, busy folks around here. In the meantime, tomorrow is Friday. We've got a jam-packed lineup tomorrow as well. Wait to hear the lineup tomorrow. We will be tweeting that out before showtime. At Guy Benson Show, by the way, Twitter and Instagram. Have a great night. Thank you for listening. We will talk to you then. Cudlow on Fox Business is now on the go for podcast fans. Get key interviews with the biggest business newsmakers of the day. The Cudlow Podcast will be available on the go after the show every weekday at foxbusinesspodcasts.com or wherever you download your favorite podcasts. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.